Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. Not long ago, holiday feasts could be challenging for vegetarians, let alone vegans. But vegan foods are readily available now from restaurant menus to supermarkets. Atlanta-based author and entrepreneur Brooke Brim has written multiple cookbooks, including The Vegan Soul Foodie, and her latest is a holiday guide titled Dishes So Decadent You Can Serve to Meat Lovers. Later this hour, City Light senior producer Kim Drobe speaks with Brim To learn more about decadent dishes, everyone can enjoy at a holiday feast. First, surrealism as an art form has captured the imaginations of creatives since the movement emerged in the early 20th century. Visual journeys through unreal places and Unpredictable juxtapositions of imagery jostle us awake and invite us to question our definitions of reality. More than dreams, exploring the surreal in art is a new exhibition at the Marietta Kopp Museum of Art on view now through December 18th. The show's co-curators, Madeline Beck and Carlos Solis, join me now via Zoom, along with contributor Clemens Bach. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Very excited to be here. Yes, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yes, thank you so much, Lois. Please introduce us to the artists whose work comes together in more than dreams. Yeah, I can kind of kick that conversation off because I think Carlos and Clemens are going to elucidate this exhibition so well because Carlos is an artist whose work is being exhibited in the exhibition. And then Clemens is the son of um, an artist who is being featured who passed away in 1981. So I'll tell you a little bit just really quickly about the artists in this exhibition. There are six of them. 
So we have Alexander Berdyshev, and he was born and raised in the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. So I think you'll learn from this interview, there's a lot of different perspectives that lean into and are explored in this exhibition. And so I love the different nationalities that we explore. Alexander's work is incredibly abstract. I think it explores the more geometric abstraction and the more unexpected side of surrealism. And then we have Gary Chapman, who was born and raised in Ohio, and he's currently a professor um, at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And his work is a little bit more, I would almost say pop art influenced. It's a little bit more surreal in its imagery, more so than in its concept. So people are really confounded by his images that combine flowers with weapons and that type of juxtaposition. Um, and then there's Larkin Ford, who is a local Atlanta artist who was born and raised in North Carolina. And he was born in 1985. So he's the youngest artist in the exhibition. So again, I really love that contribution that Larkin makes to the different perspectives, uh, whether it be age or nationality or upbringing, whatever that may mean. Larkin, his work is incredibly surreal, definitely an imagery, definitely one of the more, I would say, dark or sometimes morose uh, imagery that you'll see in the exhibition. But he the work that he contributed for this show is really exploring abstraction and the conceptual side of surrealism and doing so through color and composition rather than just, you know, what people would just anticipate to be shocking imagery. And then uh, finally, I want to speak about Vladimir Kush, who was born and raised in Russia and has been in the United States since the 90s. And he is an incredibly commercially successful artist. He um, is a pioneer of what he calls metaphorical realism. So he probably presents the work that is most photorealistic or hyperrealistic, but he presents scenarios that are absolutely fantastical and absurd, sometimes funny, sometimes a little sad or contemplative. So it's really exciting to have his work in the exhibition because he has galleries across the country. So it's a really interesting combination of lots of different types of work. And then I guess I will let Clemens and Carlos speak more about their work specifically, because they'll sum it up much better than I will, so. Oh, well, thank you, Maddie. Clemens, Carlos, please chime in. I'll let Carlos go first. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Clemens. Well, I I consider myself a traditional surrealist artist. You know, I'm a big fan of the old masters from the Dada group, Breton, uh, Dali, Tangi, Chirico. My work is based on, on dreams, visions with, you know, symbolic images, uh, you know, a dream-like landscapes. So I started painting 20 years ago, surrealism. And the, the reason I did that is because it, it was easy for me to express myself through the arts. I have these weird dreams, I didn't know what to do with them. And I, I really, I really enjoy painting. So I just I basically combined those two elements. And, and you know, that, that's how I started. So you were putting your dreams onto your canvas. Yes. 
Okay. <laughs> Clemens, please tell us about the piece you've contributed to this show. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be able to present this work. My father passed away in 1981, as it was mentioned, but um, in a sense of coincidence, he would have been 100 years old in this year when the show opened up. So he's from a slightly earlier generation. <laughs> Both my parents were artists and uh, my father and mother studied art in Germany right after World War II. In fact, they were part of the first generation of artists who studied art after the fall of the Nazi era. And uh, his work, as well as my mother's, are reflective of their experiences, obviously, in some ways. I would caution you that his, his idea of work as a, the serialist work that he did was only part of his repertoire as his portfolio. If you look at his overall body of work, he did work that was much different. And there's a reason for it, which I'll try and explain a little bit. Both of them immigrated to the United States. In fact, we all did. I was born over there. I'm also a newcomer in 51. The work that my father did for most of the early period he was doing was hardly controversial. It was actually largely abstract. His, even his figurative work were, had no details. He worked in other medias. He worked as a stained glass artist. He did stained glass window, a designer. And he was also did sculpture as well as taught at several colleges and universities, including his last stint before he passed away. He was on the faculty at Georgia Southern, where his papers are now held. The surrealist work that he did, I think, is, is important in one context. What he was doing was to look at, it was a critical look at the human psyche, I would say. And most of it you will see is biomorphism in the sense that vegetation and things like that sort of morph into the bodies of the people who are fragmented in all the work. His experience during the war and the fact that uh, he survived the war, moved to the United States, was relatively successful as an artist in Chicago, and then had a, a, a serious setback, which meant that my parents had to move back to Europe in 1970-71. It was quite a discouraging for him at that point, and he was surrounded by all the by the fact that that Germany was doing pretty well at that point. <laughs> and for somebody who had been a captive of the Germans, had experienced a concentration camp, it was kind of puzzling for him. And he began trying to figure out how can he reflect on that in his work. He was, he was always careful not to be, as he would call it, a political propagandist in his work. He wanted to speak through his work. And he found his voice in this context through surrealism, which he was quite familiar with as a, through his studies. His teachers, the schooling that he had, were either foreigners or people who had been in exile, artists who had been in exile through the period of the, of the 1930s and 40s, who had come back to Germany and brought back with them their, 
knowledge and traditions of the pre-World War II, pre-Nazi period of art, which was quite flourishing, as you know, by the time that um, my parents came, of course, none of that was left under the Nazi regime. Art like this would have been banned. That's his background and the background to this work. He did it for about five years. He was working through basically what he saw as a way of expressing his concerns as well as asking questions through this work. And there's a considerable amount of symbolism in the work. Surrealism as a cultural movement emerged in Europe post-World War I. What was going on in the hearts and minds of artists just after what was then known as the Great War? I would definitely say that any type of turmoil, heartache, upheaval, I could go on, anything like that, I think always renders out of people, especially artists and creatives, this need to respond. And sometimes those ways of responding are through these juxtapositions, taking whimsy and then also darkness and combining them together. And then if that's how they explore the duality of feelings that they're experiencing, I think that's incredibly beautiful and incredibly helpful for not only the artists, but viewers of art, of film, of dance. Um, Surrealism, I think, is something that is so much deeper even than just visual art, which is, as an art museum, what we're just exploring right here. Um, But it is so much larger than that. So I really... I don't want to necessarily pigeonhole all the artists in the exhibition um, as having necessarily responded or have all of their artwork rooted in like trauma or fear or sadness or anything political or socioeconomic necessarily. I think through their work that, you know, that you'll see and through the uh, conversations that we have, you know, our artist talks that it'll become clear that each artist is expressing something very personal and some of it is coping with darkness and with the the negative part of the society that we live in and the political and social climate but then some of it is so much more deeply personal than that so I think we're just seeing artists exploring this same type of imagery as after the world war and the same concepts. So I think it's just a, uh, this exhibition is a really interesting way to see how even today, you know, almost a century or over a century later, that artists are still looking to surreal imagery, to surreal concepts, to dreams, to the subconsciousness, the unconsciousness, to reckon with and observe and cope with everything going around them. Carlos, you've contributed to this show as well as co-curated. Will you describe your work on view in this exhibition for us? Yeah, I, I, got, I got several paintings in this show. Well, each artist has at least between five to six paintings in this show. All my paintings have a, are full of symbols and, and messages. Um, there is a, one in particular that refers to uh, my culture in Venezuela. 
the folklore and the mysticism that is practiced in my country. Uh, so I, there are legends, beliefs that I wanted to reflect in my painting. Uh, there is a third religion in my country called Maria Leonza. Uh, it's a entity or, or a spirit that a lot of people worship. It's like mother nature. People uh, go to those mountains to worship this uh, entity by invoking a spirit from every culture, uh, which is quite interesting because if you go to those places, people uh, play music from Africa, from South, you know, native of South Americans and Europe, uh, Europeans, all together in one place. That I think is a, is a, a new concept for or a uh, something that people are not familiar here in this, in this country, that I want to reflect deeply in, in that particular painting. Maddie, you touched upon surrealism as a movement at large. As we place the exhibition's works in context beyond visual art, are there other examples of film or perhaps music that we should consider? That's a great question, Lois. I didn't come with any specific examples in mind, but I am a big um, enjoyer of dance. So for me, that comes to mind first, actually, especially within the Atlanta community. I'm a huge fan of anything that the Atlanta Ballet or Terminus Modern Ballet does. And I would definitely say, especially with like Terminus Modern Ballet, there's often a strangely surreal element that is almost natural to the type of dance that they do, being very conceptual, but also very narrative based. So that really makes me think of surreal thought and art coming together in ways that are off the walls, literally. <laughs> so that comes to mind first for me. I'm a big horror movie buff, so I find a lot of surreal thought and concepts being explored in some more of the like independent horror. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of that being explored in our modern society, which I think plays perfectly into our conversation of trauma and just general societal unrest or that underlying just uneasiness and it manifests itself in our visual culture. I think the resurgence of horror and even true crime plays into the same type of thoughts that surrealism does and I think that all comes together into why dancers, filmmakers, visual artists are looking to this type of thought and this type of expression. And they have for generations, as Clemens has discussed with us today about, you know, his father's work. And it's literally history repeating itself. But I think there's a really beautiful and interesting conversation to be had through art about that. Curators Madeline Beck and Carlos Solis. They were joined by exhibition contributor Clemens Beck, more than dreams, exploring the surreal in art, is on view at the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art through December 18th. More information is on our website 
at wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, plant-based cooking takes over the kitchen with the vegan soul foodie, Brooke Brim. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. With the holidays fast approaching, many of us are taking to the kitchen now for festive meal planning. New plant-based takes on timeless staples are making their way to the dinner table thanks to the rising popularity of veganism. Atlanta-based author and entrepreneur Brooke Brim has written multiple cookbooks as the vegan soul foodie, and her latest is a holiday guide titled Dishes So Decadent You Can Serve to Meat Lovers. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes recently caught up with Brim and she explained how and when she began eliminating meat from her diet. I did not grow up in a vegan family, but my grandmother was vegetarian for 50 years. Um, My mother was not vegetarian, but we knew about vegetarianism. So when I was about 22 years old, I went off to college and I became a vegetarian. So I call my journey uh, plant dominant because over the last 30 years, I've either been vegetarian, vegan, um, raw plant-based or pescatarian. Currently, I'm 100% plant-based. So that's my journey. My husband has been right along with me around the time that we met. He joined me and we've been on this journey for 30 years. Oh, that's fantastic. And I've read that you prefer the terms plant dominant or plant-based. Is that because you haven't always been a strict vegan? Uh, it's a combination of things. It's, yes, it, it's part of because I haven't been a strict vegan and I want to also stay away from the politics of veganism. I'm really more about the food. And so it explains that my journey has been predominantly plants and also it keeps me out of the realm of uh, the politics involved with being a vegan because really the term vegan is a very political term and um, I just kind of stay away from that. I really just enjoy eating plants. <laughs> I totally hear what you're saying. Although I am not sure I am aware of vegan as a political term. Could you elaborate on the context for that? Yes. Well, to be considered a vegan, 
it really is about uh, making the decision that you are going to live a lifestyle where you're in support of animals and you are uh, against any company, any product, anything that is uh, going to harm animals or yeah, basically harm animals. That's what veganism is about, deciding not to harm animals. Understood. And you are much more focused just on the plants that you are putting in your body. Yes. I got you. Well, I've known quite a few vegetarians over the years. My husband is a vegetarian. He is not a vegan. And for him and for other vegetarians I've known, it seems to be difficult to make that step to be vegan and get rid of that dairy. Is there something that you normally use as a go-to when recipes call for milk, butter, creams, and cheeses? Well, you know, when I started this uh, 30 years ago, there was nothing available in terms of replacing dairy. Well, very little. You know, we used to have to make our non-dairy milk from a powder. And, uh, you know, there just were not many choices. Now, commercially, there's a so many choices to replace dairy. Go into the plant-based dairy section. There's a wall of so many different plant-based milks to choose from. But then there are also so many cheeses to choose from, and they're usually in the refrigerated section, in the produce section. I personally, because I've been doing this for so many years, way before uh, the, the commercial products, when it comes to replacing cheese and sour cream, cream cheese and things like that, I usually turn to soaked almonds and soaked uh, raw cashews. And I use that in various ways to make cheese and cream cheese and creamy things. So you're using your food processor a lot. Yes, yes. (laughs) Where did you develop your cooking chops? I would say from my nanny, because she was a vegetarian for 50 years. So it just was a part of my, almost a part of my DNA. Like it's just, I learned at the knee of my grandmother and my mother about vegan plant cooking, vegetarian cooking. And I've just developed it over the years. And my group on Facebook actually helps me immensely as well. You know, we get ideas from each other. And so I just, you know, take it and run with it. Have you always felt passionate about cooking? I mean, my family has cooked as well, although I never developed cooking chops. Did you always enjoy it as a kid? Yes, yes, yes. I have uh, been cooking since probably about eight or nine years old. Uh, Mm. It's it's time that I would spend with my mother in the kitchen. Like I would, she might be making gravy and I was tasked with making the thickening as she called it, or now we might call it a slurry. Um, So I was tasked with peeling the potatoes. And and that's just basically how I learned to cook. Like after school, I'd be in the kitchen with my mom. And eventually by, by about 12 or 13, I was making full meals. And, you know, I've just been going since there. Wow, that's very impressive for a 13 year old. (laughs) So tell us about your holiday experiences as a plant dominant eater. Most of my family is not plant plant dominant or vegan or plant based or anything. My kids are vegetarian. Um, So we join together and I make my dishes and they taste them and they eat them and they make their dishes. And and that's just pretty much how it is. I've also gone to gatherings uh, at my husband's family and for years, you know, because we've been on this journey for 30 years, for years, they didn't understand vegetarian, plant-based, anything. And so um, a lot of times we go to the holidays and there might be meat in all the vegetables and meat and everything, dairy and everything. And 
we might just have to go out and get Chinese after the holiday. I mean, after the, after the meal, because there's literally nothing for us to eat. It's hard navigating shared spaces like that. Yeah. Indeed. Well, your sense of humor comes out in your book quite a bit, specifically in this newest one, Recipe Guide, Dishes So Decadent You Can Serve to Meat Lovers. You have a section on fried food and you start out with, fried food is fun. Most people do not hate fun. I love that. Tell me about your favorite fried dishes to cook. Oh, my favorite fried dishes. Oh, I just made a dish. Um, this is not necessarily a holiday dish, but it could absolutely be a um, an appetizer for a holiday. I love this malenga fritter. Malenga is a very ugly root vegetable that you can find like in Asian markets. You um, peel it down and you can grate it up and it's already nice and crispy. It doesn't need any extra coating or any extra flour or anything like that. You just kind of squeeze it to activate the starch just there, season it up. And it's so incredibly crunchy and yummy. And I love to fry that up. And, you know, I love to fry vegan calamari, which is actually made from hearts of palm. That's one of my favorite. Mm. Um, yeah, you just add a little seaweed and you add like your Cajun seasoning to it, a wet batter and a dry batter. And it is so amazing. And I love the hearts of palm because you can find that right in your regular grocery store. You don't have to go anywhere special to find that one. And it's so good. Well, what about some traditional African-American foods like collard greens, black eyed peas, stuff like that, and mac and cheese? Gosh, how are you making these dishes vegan? Okay, so for my mac and cheese, I start with a butternut squash that I've either steamed or boiled, and I blend yeah. that down. Like you said, I use my blender a lot. I blend that down <laughs> with raw cashews. Nutritional yeast is a very big ingredient if you're trying to mimic cheese, if you're trying to make your own uh, cheese. And that you can find in uh, most stores, farmers markets like Sprouts and things like that. They have it in the bulk section. Um, and it's a powder, right? It's a powder. And actually, you actually can find it on the baking aisle these days as well. But it's in a shaker form. So you're mm -hmm. not maybe won't get as much as you need. But if you're in a, you know, if you're in a pinch, you can go to the baking aisle and you will see nutritional yeast there. I've, been, I've seen it everywhere. And that is like a big factor to make your vegan cheese. I also love a lot of garlic and, you know, nuts, garlic, oil, nutritional yeast and milk, and you have vegan cheese. It's delicious. And of course I add butternut squash just to give it that hardiness and that, that color. And for my greens, I don't, of course, don't use any meat. So I start off with like an olive oil base and I use a, lots of aromatics, peppers and celery, and sometimes jalapenos and garlic and, and shallots. And I put that in my food processor, saute it in my olive oil. And then I don't use any liquid at all in my greens because the vegetables oh, wow. have so, yeah, they have so much intense flavor that if you add your greens in slowly, and I love to mix them as well, as well because that gives you an intense flavor as well. You add your greens in slowly with a little salt and it starts to make its own liquid. And then you just put that on either on low or you can put it on your uh, pressure cooker, your stove pressure cooker, or, or your electric pressure cooker, and you'll have all the liquid you need, all the pot liquor you need. That is very cool. So I definitely want to talk to you about more traditional Thanksgiving foods. But when I was looking through your family meals book, I saw mm -hmm. your gumbo recipe. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, how do you make a good roux without butter? Oh, I just use vegan um, butter or margarine. 
and it, it comes out just fine. Well, actually, really? no, that's that is not true. I don't use vegan. <laughs> I, I use oil. <laughs> I use oil. But in place of butter, you know, when I when you just talked about butter, it made me think about uh, butter. I always use vegan butter or margarine in place of butter. But for my gumbo, I definitely use grapeseed oil because it has that high uh, burn point and flour and just equal parts and just stir and stir and stir until it uh, browns up and, and go from there. Start adding in your aromatics and it's delicious. Well, for a Thanksgiving meal, what are the main dishes that you suggest for the holidays that even a meat eater would love? Definitely want to go with yams or sweet potatoes. I have a recipe for that in my traditional family meals. You want to have a mac and cheese. And of course, I I like the butternut squash one, but I also have a cauliflower based one, which is delicious as well. It's going to give you a little bit more of that sharp cheese taste because of the cauliflower. Yeah, I, I love garlic string beans and I love broccoli and cheese casserole. Of course, greens of, of any mixture um, and corn pudding or fried corn are great. Of course, for main dishes, I like to do what I call a, a faux uh, dark meat mixture and it's made from mushrooms. So it's portobello mushrooms, shiitake mushrooms and king oyster mushroom sliced up and shredded together inside of a pressure cooker and then you just make your slurry in there and you have this yummy dark meat substitute the key is to make sure that you're using yeah you're using all your thanksgiving type seasonings and then it really mimics that dark meat so when i say that i mean you want to make sure that you have your your thyme your rosemary your sage or if you don't know the right measurements you can just use poultry seasoning and you really get that you know that dark meat gravy taste from mushrooms. Delicious. I love the idea of shredding that many different mushrooms together. Yeah, it's so delicious. So good. So good. I also make a uh, a Cajun fried drumstick, which is rice mm. paper on the outside. Yeah, again, it's shredded mushrooms inside and some, some right un- unripened jackfruit inside. Oh, can we talk about jackfruit a little more? I don't know if everyone's familiar with it. So jackfruit is a big um, kind of ugly plant, uh, <laughs> well, fruit that you find in the tropical tropical um, parts of the world. It When it's fully ripe, it's yellow, it's sweet, and it tastes between a mix of, I would say, like a pineapple and a mango. It's really delicious. When you're using it to sub- substitute for uh, meats, you make sure that you get the green, young, uh, unripened, and it comes in a can. Some say that it comes frozen, but I've never found it green and unripened in the frozen. So I buy it in the can. And if it's like you win the lottery, you'll find it in water. If, <laughs> if, you, don't win, if you don't win the lottery, then you'll find it in brine. And then you have to soak it or you have to boil it to get a little bit of that brine flavor out. It should come, you come out pretty bland, it's, you know, and, and it's there to soak up all the flavor that you want to add to it. You kind of shred it with your fork, um, and I use it for pulled pork. I use it to imitate inside of my turkey leg that I talked about, my Cajun fried turkey leg. I use it for various things. I also make a turkey cutlet made out of seitan, and inside of that I put jackfruit and also king oyster mushroom. So I use it to mimic sort of like turkey fiber, you know, or meat meat fibers. So I use the king oyster mushroom to give me sort of like long meat fibers. And then I use the jackfruit to give me sort of like short meat fibers. 
That is very cool. So I, I'm very drawn to how well you incorporate whole vegetables into your dishes that end up mimicking meat very, very well. I'm curious, though, what your opinion is of the many processed meat substitutes that are readily available nowadays. I am all for them because uh, we all have, of course, we have these times we want to eat, you know, organic and whole and as pure as possible. And I love that. But we also have times where realistically we're rushing. We need to get food on the table quickly. We want a certain, we want to achieve a certain texture or flavor. And so I love the availability of the, the quick processed ones as much as I love the whole foods. I love it all. Well, let's end on a sweet note. What is your favorite dessert recipe to share with us for Thanksgiving? Uh, my favorite dessert recipe is sweet potato cobbler. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it really is delicious. Um, so you just make your sweet potatoes uh, the way you would normally make maybe your candied yams, make sure that it's sweet enough, and then you just cover it with a um, puff pastry. Um, and certain puff, not all puff pastries are vegan, but the one that I get from Pepperidge Farm is vegan. And you just lay that on top. You have all this juiciness and wonderful flaky puff pastry. And it's just an amazing dessert with some vegan ice cream. Atlanta author Brooke Brim speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. More information about her new book, the Vegan Soul Foodie Recipe Guide. Dishes so decadent you can serve to meat lovers is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, the story behind Art in the Paint, the local organization that aims to beautify and revitalize decaying basketball courts. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. For many of us who are fans of the game, basketball is an art form. Well, here's a story where art and basketball meet on the court. Art in the Paint is an Atlanta-based nonprofit created by former pro basketball player and coach Aurelius Cooper, a.k.a. Coop. The organization aims to beautify and revitalize decaying basketball courts by engaging artists to paint the court surface with colorful designs. Aurelius Cooper joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. How are you today? I'm good and eager to hear more of about art in the paint. What prompted you to start the organization? I started the organization to counteract some negative experiences I had at Stone Mountain. Ooh. Um, I went up the mountain, and I am uh, both Black and Latino. I'm uh, African-American and Dominican. 
And just seeing, you know, Confederate soldiers honored there wasn't as much of a problem for me as others. But just thinking about the negativity that's involved with the art and how I could counteract that with something positive in my community rather than being one of those people who's like, I want to blow up the mountain. Like, I'm not blowing up the mountain. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I can do something positive instead in my own community and uplift people using art. So that prompted art in the paint. Oh, it's such a wonderful idea. I was curious, do you have any background in the arts or painting yourself? I am a terrible painter but a wonderful project manager. I'm a fan of all art. And in my years of playing basketball, I actually became a bit of a collector. And I started to notice that nothing in the world, I've I've traveled to over 36 countries, did basketball work in 13. And I noticed that nothing brings people together like sports and art. If you just think about how many people listen to music or will go to a festival or concert or go to a a basketball or football or baseball game or soccer game. I just saw the unifying powers of art, and I knew that that would be a way to get people together to work towards um, community building. Oh, that's fantastic. So how many basketball courts have you revitalized to date? I think we're on number 24 to date. We just started a partnership with Savannah College of Art and Design, a.k.a. SCAD. Mm -hmm. They have a project called Paint Our Parks, and we're doing a little bit of admin work and uh, just some of the programming for that as well. So I think we're on 24 starting today. Like, we're literally putting the goals in right now. Uh, How do you find the courts? Uh, We get a ton of emails Sometimes politicians, rappers, just community members all reach out to us. And also, I'm an Atlanta guy. I grew up here, and I grew up playing on a lot of courts around the city. It was a thing when I came home. I always wanted to host camps or give back to the communities. And I just kept noticing, like, man, these parks are really torn down. I have younger uh, godchildren. And I couldn't see bringing a five-year-old to a court that has huge cracks, a bunch of glass on it, questionable drug paraphernalia, possible gang activity. You know, all these things were at the park. And I was like, there's everything here but basketball, like literally everything but basketball. So we got inspired to kind of change that around. Yeah. Well, so where are some of the locations? My favorite location right now is a Dare Park 1. We're actually going to be doing a Dare Park 2, uh, Howell Park in the West End, Rose Circle Park in the West End at the Lee and White Street development is probably one of our favorites. You know what? They're all my favorite. Wow. <laughs> we did a park in East Point that meant a lot to us. It was at Brookdale Park. There was a young man named Tyrell Sims who was uh, shot in a drive-by. He was just an innocent bystander. And we were already planning on painting the court. But um, when he passed away, we were so touched that we didn't know whether to put rest in power or rest in peace on the court. 
And now the court says power and peace. And it has his uh, jersey number on there in East Point, which is a very tragic thing. And we're um, really sad about it, but we were proud to be able to honor such a remarkable young man. Yeah. I realize you can't possibly go into all 24, but Coop, would you describe some of the paintings you and your team have created? You mentioned Rose Park. That is gorgeous. Yeah, Rose Circle, Elaine Stevenson, a very talented artist, she painted a mural for, a court mural for um, the West End community. You know, most communities have community colors, and we had the name Rose Circle. She made a, um, I think, African-inspired design that had a beautiful rose on it, and it utilized the colors of green, yellow, purple, maroon and red because those were the neighborhood's colors to really just get the most out of the design and it was it was lovely uh, there's a rapper named Lil Baby Lil Baby actually uh, partnered with Foot Locker to hire us to go to Oakland City Park also known as James Orange Park we renovated that court with a uh, actual visual of Lil Baby giving doing community service in the park and Reverend James Orange in the middle, kind of just showing, bridging the gap between civil rights leaders and current activists that try to help out in the community. Is there another court or maybe two that you would like to describe for our listeners? Sure. So one of the greatest honors that we've had was being able to do a court for President Jimmy Carter. It is a Boys and Girls Club in Plains, Georgia. It's a simple design. It's just a, um, of course, the Boys and Girls Club logos. But we did a um, picture of Jimmy and Rosalind Carter in the middle. And there is a, I think it says, it's a great place to start or whatever their slogan is. But we actually spruced up the backboards the polls just redid the game lines and made it possible for them to have leagues there. So that was one of our most proudest moments because you don't think that, you know, being a, um, you know, washed up basketball player that you're going to get to be the president. So that was, that was very cool and inspirational. The other thing that we just did, that's like probably the most amazing thing we've done is we worked with an artist called Kevin Bongang, and he uh, designed a mural at the Kensington Martyr Station that is just phenomenal. It's the largest transit mural in the world, actually, and it was just a parking lot, and now there's two soccer fields, and we have a mural going all the way around it, which is, like, probably the most incredible thing that we've ever been able to do. Like, honestly, it it just blew our mind away, especially with the World Cup coming. It's just a um, a wonderful thing. Yeah, we have our own martyr card that has the actual mural on it. So that's probably the most um, memorable and amazing thing that we've ever been able to be a part of. In addition to beautifying, there is a social justice component to the art 
that's included in many of your murals. Yes. While we don't often reflect social justice in the artwork, what we try to do with our programming is bring free programming for kids who, in a lot of cases, wouldn't be able to afford it normally. For example, in the 30310 zip code, uh, the median family income is about $32,000. And, you know, statistically speaking, most children who are in that price range, their parents can't afford for them to play organized sports, which, you know, inadvertently leads to them finding other outlets and other things to do. So what we do is we organize free sports clinics, free basketball camps, free basketball leagues that include mentorship, meals, and health fairs at all of our locations as well. So that's how we approach social justice. It, it has to be more than just uh, holding up signs and yelling at people. We want to actually bring uh, equity to people, especially girls. What we found is my goddaughter plays at Rutgers University, and I can only imagine when she was four or five years old, bringing her to a basketball court where there's a bunch of large men, some of them drinking, some of them smoking, all of them using foul language, and there's nothing there that makes her feel safe. Kids and women especially deserve safe spaces to play, and it can't just be for the guys. You know, I'm a large black and brown man, right? So I feel pretty safe. But I want everybody to be able to go to one of our courts and let the art give them a blanket of security and safety. That's very real. That is so admirable. I was wondering if you have gotten any pushback or hesitancy from neighborhood residents when you beautify these courts. Do some of the residents worry that gentrification will displace them and, and these beautiful designs are a sign of that gentrification? We canvassed the neighborhoods first. We talked to all of the uh, neighborhood planning units and a part of the City of Atlanta Park Pride process is us actually getting approval from the neighborhoods associations. So we do a great bit of research and communication beforehand, and we include people in the process. So if we're painting, anyone in the neighborhood can come out and paint. They're also giving a heads up and invited to any events that we have. All their kids are invited to the leagues. It's a partnership. It's not an opportunity for us to come in and take over. We actually become a part of what that neighborhood is doing and talk to the planning committees as well. Aurelius Cooper, founder of Art in the Paint. More information about the nonprofit is on our website, wabe.org slash citylife. For people of a certain age, cutoffs refer to clothing you made yourself from cutting through a pair of blue jeans to create a pair of shorts. 
Atlanta-based wood artist Doug Pisick has a one-day show of works this Saturday created out of cutoffs, which have nothing to do with denim or clothing. Here he explains the term. Cutoffs are the small wood pieces left behind from previous projects that are normally tossed. The cutoff series is dozens of one-of-a-kind approachable works in different forms. These include sculptures cut with graceful curves inspired by forms I've seen in nature. Also included are warm, heart-shaped containers that, unlike most art, are meant to be held and touched. Doug created these designs out of cutoffs in order to recycle pieces that are often discarded. And working with small pieces can be cumbersome, time-consuming, and often not safe since your hands are closer to the sharp blades when working with them. I have found that these small pieces of wood are often too unique and beautiful to toss, and I like to avoid waste when possible. As such, I designed a number of projects that use these cutoffs as a way to keep them out of the landfills and also to challenge myself to see what can be made with them. This show is on view at the Robert Kent Galleries in Marietta on November 26th. More information is available on his website, dougpisick.com. That's Doug, P-I-S-I-K, dot com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate, and thanks.